The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you bore the love of the Father to us in the flesh. May we embody that same love here in our fellowship together in the city around us and throughout the world for the honor and glory of your name. Amen. Please be seated. I recently listened to a fascinating interview with Karen Swallow Pryor, who's professor of English literature at Southeastern Baptist University up in Wake Forest. And in the interview, she made an important distinction between reading that simply informs us and reading that does the much deeper work of forming us as mature people. You know, most of what we read on a daily basis is on the information end of the spectrum. So we gobble up news reports and social commentary. We catch up on friends and family through Facebook or Instagram. We glance at Twitter or our favorite news feed to stay caught up on the world. Rarely, however, do we take time to slow down and read something truly formative a literary masterpiece or a devotional classic, something that sets to work on our hearts and minds at a foundational level, addressing our hopes, our fears, and our fundamental convictions about life. We do this rarely, but we need it desperately. Over the next seven weeks, we're going to do this kind of formative reading as we work our way through Paul's short letter to the church in Philippi. Now, when you set this letter, the letter to the Philippians, alongside Paul's other letters in the New Testament, it it feels different. It's less argumentative. It's more personal. It's almost chatty at times. Paul kind of bounces from topic to topic, but all the while he's circling back to a handful of major themes that he quietly develops along the way. He doesn't seem to be putting out any major fires or arguing against a particular heresy. He's simply writing to his friends. He wants to update them on his life, thank them for a gift that they've sent, instruct them in a few areas and warn them in others. And most of all, he wants to encourage them in their life in Christ. As we listen in on this very personal correspondence, we're going to get a window into Paul's heart. And it's one that I pray will open a door into our own hearts as we seek to have them formed 
by our Lord Jesus. So if you're not there already, I hope you'll turn to Philippians 1 with me. You can find it on page 980 in the Red Bibles, page 980. And as we dip our toes into this first chapter this morning, I want to begin by orienting you to the people and to the places of this letter before we turn to reflect on a a theme that shapes the letter as a whole. So first, the people. The letter begins with a, a salutation typical to letters written at this time. Paul identifies himself and Timothy as those who are writing the letter. And then he identifies the letter's recipients as all the saints who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Now, Paul was an apostle, a man sent out by God to carry the message of the gospel. Timothy was Paul's protege, a man on whom he depended for personal and moral support and a man to whom he would entrust the care of the churches that he had planted. So Paul writes not as a sole authoritarian figure, he writes as a man who needs friends and who has friends. And when he writes to the church in Philippi, he doesn't write just to the people that he left in charge, the leaders. He quite clearly writes to everyone. So throughout this first chapter, Paul Paul refers to you all multiple times. It was clearly his intent that this letter was to be read out loud to the whole congregation together, all of whom he knew and loved. Last week, if you were here, you heard Jason preach on Acts 16, and you heard the story of how Paul started this church around the year 49 AD. It began in the smallest of ways with the the conversion of a handful of women, a demon-possessed girl, and the town jailer. It was not the most promising beginning. And as it turned out, Paul Paul was run out of town unceremoniously before he had much of a chance to get things off the ground. Since that first visit, however, Paul had been back two or perhaps even three times. And he writes them now, most likely a dozen years later, with the benefit of that shared history of participating in God's miraculous grace together. So these are the people of the letter. It's an intimate letter filled with affection. But it's written from a surprisingly dark place. Four times in the first 18 verses, Paul refers to his own imprisonment. He doesn't say where he is, but he refers to the imperial guard in verse 13, which is one of several compelling reasons to believe that he is most likely under house arrest in Rome. Paul wrote this letter from the heart of the empire. He was awaiting news of his fate from the court of Caesar himself. Would he be set free and thus able to visit the Philippians again as he says he longs to do at the end of this chapter? Or will he be given a death sentence? He doesn't know. He doesn't know what the future holds. Paul writes from a place of constraint and uncertainty, completely under the power of Caesar. And he writes to a place, Philippi, that's also under the power of Caesar. Philippi was an imperial colony located in modern-day Greece on a strategic roadway that led from Europe into Asia. Now, as an imperial colony, it enjoyed special prestige that came with certain pressures. It was an outpost of Caesar's power. Where Caesar was worshipped as a god... And where that simple phrase, Jesus is Lord, 
would have been considered a crime against the empire. This letter, as free and as warm and as intimate as it is, has a cloud that hangs over it, and that cloud is the brutal power of the Roman Empire. Now, we're not going to linger on this today, but keep it in mind in the weeks ahead because it will factor in in important ways, and it's well worth keeping in mind this simple fact that the light of the gospel shines in dark places. So we have the people in the places of this letter. But what is it that drives Paul to write? In chapter 4, we'll learn that this is, in part, a thank you letter. We've all written these before. The Philippians had sent Paul, had sent Paul a monetary gift, and he is sending a much-delayed letter of thanks. But there's more to it than that. He wants to encourage and instruct them, and so he touches on a number of important themes over the course of these four chapters. There's just one, however, that I want to reflect on today, one that I think ties all of them together, and that is the abounding love of Jesus Christ. I want you to listen again to the opening lines, beginning at verse 3, and I want you to notice the language of affection, friendship, and love. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul loves these people. He longs to be with them. He prays for them regularly. He thinks of them as partners, not as projects. He's proud of them, and he's confident in them. But where does this love come from? Well, Paul makes it clear, abundantly clear in verse 8, when he writes, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In order to capture the depth of his affection, Paul expresses it in the form of an oath. It's similar to when we say, God is my witness, or I swear on the Holy Bible. Not only is this an amplification of the language of love that permeates these opening lines, it's an explanation of where that love comes from. Paul has been joined to the Philippians through Jesus. He loves them because Jesus loves them. And he loves them as Jesus loves them. They love him in the same way. The love that lies at the heart of this letter is the love that is born out of union with Christ. I want to draw out just a few implications from this language of abounding love that we see in evidence in this chapter. And the first is this, that the love of Christ leads us into partnership. The love of Christ leads us into partnership. So the word translated partnership in verse 5, it's this Greek word koinonia, which you may have heard before. It's often translated fellowship. Another form of the verb comes in verse 7 where it's translated as, partake, as partakers. And there, Paul is explaining that he holds the Philippians close to his heart because they share the fellowship of grace. 
Now we, like Paul and the Philippians, we share the fellowship of grace. God has drawn us into life together as his children. Christian fellowship isn't something that we do that establishes a new reality called the church. Christian fellowship is a reality brought about by God that we then act upon intentionally as we build community together. Now we're part of an individualistic society where we are taught to think of faith of taught to think of our faith as something deeply personal, which of course it is. But for Paul, faith is never merely personal. He would have scoffed at the idea of keeping our spiritual lives private. You see, by faith, we are incorporated into the fellowship of Jesus who places us in fellowship with one another. And so the question is, is not how are you going to create fellowship with other Christians? The question is, what are you going to do about the fact of your fellowship that you share by virtue of God's grace? Now, we're part of a fairly large body of believers here at Holy Trinity. You can't, you won't have a deep relationship with everyone. It's hard enough just to remember names. But there are two things that I want you to know. First, these people here, some of whose names you'll struggle to remember, and some you know very well, these people are your partners in this life of faith. They need you. You need them. You won't be close to everyone, but you need to be available. Second, we all need to take the time and spend the energy developing deeper relationships with a few close partners in the Christian life. If you do not have close Christian friends with whom you can struggle, grieve, and rejoice, your faith will never provide you with the courage and the sustenance that you need to flourish as a person. We need Jesus and we need each other. My question to you is, do you have partners in Christ or are they merely acquaintances? So if you're not currently part of a small group of some kind with other Christians, I want to encourage you to find one. It's a good time of year to start something new. We've got lots of ways to do that here. The primary way in which is through community groups. And if you want to find out more, talk to Jason Palacio after the service. So the love of Christ leads us into partnership. <clears throat> That's the first implication of the language of abounding love in the opening lines of this letter. The second implication is this. The love of Christ leads us into faithful, fervent prayer for each other. It's all over the place in this first chapter, but listen especially to verses 9 through 11. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want to pay attention first to the reason behind this prayer, and then secondly to the content of this prayer. So the reason Paul prays for his friends in Philippi is because he loves them. Now, that's simple enough, but I wonder if you've ever thought about the fact that one of the most significant ways you can express your affection for someone is by praying for them. So flowers are really nice. Phone calls are great. 
letters, texts, physical touch. These are all signs of affection, but one of the most powerful ways of showing affection is actually prayer. If you love someone, you will pray for them. But you know, there's actually more to this relationship between love and prayer than this because the reverse is also true. If you pray for someone, you will learn to love them. So, you know, love can be a struggle, especially with those who are closest to us. It is not spontaneous. It's learned. It's disciplined. It's costly. To love another person with the love of Christ, it depends on prayer. And prayer brings forth love because when we enter into God's presence and pray for someone else, we begin to be shaped by God's love for them. We begin to see them as God sees them and to love them as God loves them. That's the power of the Holy Spirit at work in prayer. So love is the reason behind Paul's prayer. It's also, not surprisingly, the content of his prayer. So he prays that the Philippians will abound in love, that they will abound in their love of Christ and of one another. And have you noticed how the logic of love unfolds in this prayer? Paul prays that their love will abound with knowledge and discernment. This is not the thoughtless love of endless affirmation that we prize so desperately in American culture today. The cheap love of likes on Facebook or heart emojis. This is the costly love of Jesus. Now for Paul, according to Paul, love leads to wisdom and discernment, and it has a purpose. He continues his prayer saying, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Abundant love leads to obedience. Do you love someone who's in rebellion or resistant to grace or simply in a bad place spiritually? Pray for the abounding love of Jesus Christ to overwhelm them. Take these verses, pray them for your loved ones, and pray them for yourself, that love may abound. I want to say one last thing about love in the context of this first chapter, and it's this. Abounding love leads to a generous spirit. So take a look at verse 15 and, and following. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is incredible. Paul knows that there are men out there preaching from envy and rivalry out to make a name for themselves. They're insincere. They're ambitious. He also knows that these broken vessels, that through these broken vessels, the gospel is nonetheless being proclaimed. What's his response? To rejoice. Sitting there under house arrest, unable to go out and preach with uncertainty hanging over his head, 
It would have been natural for Paul to be bitter and critical, but he's not. His heart is light with the love of Christ. He's able to treat these jerks with a generous spirit, understanding the much bigger logic of God that's at work. I want to be like this. I want you to be like this. We are so quickly critical of others. We are so swift to become bitter toward those whom we see as selfish and insincere. Paul is not. When the love of Christ abounds, we are given the gift of a generous spirit with one another. The beating heart of this unusual letter is the love of God in Christ. It's a love that abounds in the context of Christian community. It leads us into partnership and faithful prayer for each other, and it produces a spirit of generosity. Well, today, as we celebrate our 18th anniversary as a church body, it's my prayer that we will abound in love like this, that we will grow ever more deeply in partnership with each other, that we will pray diligently and regularly for each other, and that our life together will be marked by an extraordinary generosity of spirit. Now, by focusing on the love of God in Christ, we have considered the most important element in this opening chapter, but we have only barely scratched the surface of the, of the letter to the Philippians. There's much more to come and so much more for us to learn as we seek not simply to be informed by what we read, but as we long to be formed in the image of Christ. As you go out this morning, I want to ask you to do something specific. I want to ask you to take 20 minutes sometime this week in order to listen to this entire letter read out loud. Now, you can do this by downloading the ESV Bible app and listening to the lovely Northern Irish accent of Kristen Getty as she reads it aloud. Or you can do this through any number of other apps or websites. I want to encourage you to find a quiet place and listen to the whole thing from start to finish. Let Paul's words soak into you as we begin to inhabit this letter together. And as you do, pray that love will abound. Let me pray for us. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the abundant love of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us as your very own, for drawing us into fellowship with you and with one another. May we love each other well. Would you draw us into partnership? Would you lead us into faithful, fervent prayer? Would you give us a spirit of generosity in our life together so that you might be honored, your grace might abound, and the gospel be proclaimed in this place for the honor and glory of your name. Amen.